Hi, everyone. This is America Adapts, the climate change podcast. With these sea level rise projections that we were going to end up perhaps being a walled city, a city where we could no longer see the water, potentially not even see the sunset or the sunrise, depending on where you are in the height of those walls. And that is something that personally is probably the greatest concern to me. Hey Adapters, welcome back to another exciting episode. I'm Doug Parsons, your host of America Adapts and your all-around adaptation enthusiast. That quote was from my guest this week, Signe Nielsen. Signe is a landscape architect who's doing some exciting work in New York City and dealing with the challenges of adapting to climate change in the Big Apple. This is my first episode focusing on New York City. Signe digs into the nitty gritty of what it's like working in the city and the complexity of dealing with adaptation there. I like to call the work Signe does as shovel-ready adaptation. It's work that's happening right now. Okay, before we get into our conversation with Signe, some brief housekeeping. I started a new thing, semi-new now. It's Letters from Adapters, and I have two awesome letters to share in this episode. Okay, I want to start off with Christie's. Hi, Doug. Happy 2019. I hope the new year's treating you and your family well. It took me a bit to get caught up on the last few months of the podcast. I continue to enjoy the flood management series. The year in review show is always a good one. You had some really great episodes last year and my preferences align with the others. Episode 64 on the law and climate change was a pleasant surprise. The podcasts with Elizabeth Rush have been great. My favorite was episode 75, particularly the trans discussion. And I think she means a people's history of climate adaptation. This past semester in school, I was involved in discussions about social equity and marginalized groups. And that episode added a new dimension to the outputs of the conversation. I wanted to share some thoughts about episode 80, and that's the one WWF adapting to climate change. As someone who works in the humanitarian development sector, this was an especially intriguing episode as it provided a view into the inner workings of an NGO. Many of us have been to workshops like this only the topic is a little different however these challenges are across most ngos and there were so many pieces i could identify with throughout the process kudos to wwf for putting themselves out there this level of transparency is something we lack in the ngo world one of the things i liked best about this work and the episode was the follow-up to the workshop i would be interested in seeing where each country office is in the process this summer wwf is smart by collaborating with you when will others follow Great question, Christy. Okay, enjoy the Arizona sunshine. We're gearing up for some weather phenomenon known as the Winter Storm Harper. I've missed the snow, so I'll take it. Looking forward to your next episodes. Christy Tabai. Thanks, Christy. Christy has been a longtime listener, and she's doing some great adaptation work in the Midwest. Yes, your email was perfect. That's exactly what we were going for in that WWF episode, giving a behind-the-scenes look at WWF and what it takes to integrate adaptation within their existing work. They are doing some amazing things, but I think they would also say that they have a long way to go. It's a work in progress. But I hope other groups, big or small, can listen to that episode and learn from it and take on their own institutional evolution. And FYI, you're crazy for missing snow. Snow gets old in about seven minutes. You Midwesterners and your love of winter, you should be institutionalized. You see what I just did there? Okay, on the second email, and this one is from Rob Hart from Rhode Island. Hello, Doug. My name is Rob Hart, and I want to thank you for putting out your podcast, and I want to introduce myself. I'm relatively new to adaptation, and your podcast is a very helpful resource. I spent the first 11 years of my career as a naval officer traveling around the Pacific Rim and gaining a better understanding of the fragileness of our spaceship and its various ecosystems. Following my service in the Navy, I earned an MBA in sustainability and spent six years in the weeds working on an energy efficiency nonprofit. At the time, I felt sustainability was the best way for me to address the challenges of climate change. At the same time, I served as co-chair of my Rhode Island's Town Energy Committee, working to improve the efficiency of our town's buildings and increase the adoption of solar power and energy efficiency in our community. For a while, this all seemed like it was enough of a way for me to contribute to the great challenge in front of us. My town, Rhode Island, is just down the road from the spot in Warren, Rhode Island that Elizabeth Rust so eloquently captures in the prologue to her book, Rising. Two years ago, I began looking closely at sea level rise projections and their impacts on our community. I realized that we needed to grapple with this challenge today rather than waiting for the inevitable sea level rise. So I worked with my town to expand the scope of the committee I lead to focus on resilience. There's a lot of energy and support for this work in the community. 
professionally. Last spring, I decided that after six years, I needed to find a new challenge and have spent the last year on a sort of mid-career sabbatical. As I look toward the future, I am increasingly interested in making adaptation a focus of my professional life beyond my local volunteer work. Sitting here on the Atlantic coast, it seems like such a huge endeavor ahead of us that most of us have not begun to understand, let alone begin planning for. Adaptation reminds me a lot of sustainability which is a broad area which encompasses a lot of different professional skill sets. During my MBA, it took me a few years to arrive at energy efficiency as my focus area. With adaptation, I feel like I am back at square one. I am still trying to understand the landscape of adaptation, what kinds of skill sets will be most impactful, and which ones I could potentially add to my tool belt. Do you have any thoughts or recommendations about resources? Best regards, Rob Hart. Thanks, Rob. I love this email because it brings up something that I am seeing more and more, and that's people who are well into their careers but have an interest in transitioning into the adaptation universe. Rob and I were able to email a bit back and forth. There aren't too many degree programs in adaptation out there, so people are adjusting their skills as they go. Personally, I think Rob's background in sustainability would make him more than qualified to take on many of the policy and education adaptation jobs that are popping up. But let me be clear, there's a model, climate modeler job out there. You just can't wing that. You certainly need the very specific skill sets to do that. I think I need to do an episode about mid-career transitions into adaptation. Like I said before, I'm hearing this more and more. People contact me asking my advice. So if you have ideas for this, please reach out to me if you are experiencing something similar. I think people are not familiar enough with the adaptation universe as an emerging field that they don't realize or necessarily have the confidence to think that they might fit in right now. Yes, you have a lot of homework to do, but at the same time, we are still early days in this field. There aren't really certification programs there aren't that many degree programs that are required specifically for adaptation, but I think a lot of the environmental work that's going on out there makes you a good fit for adaptation. Okay, you might have to figure out where your background and your skills are a good fit, and you might have to go back for a little bit of schooling, but just be strategic about it. Thanks again, Rob. Fantastic email. Okay, quickly, if you are listening to this on YouTube, consider subscribing to America Adapts on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or Stitcher or any of those. Just search for America Adapts on those apps. That way, each new episode will be waiting for you when they are published. All right, some upcoming episodes. Next up is a conservation and law episode with Deanna Moran and Elena Milani from the Conservation Law Foundation. This was a fun three-way conversation where we dig into adaptation and legal liability. And I assure you the conversation was more exciting than that, what that sounded like. I'm also interviewing tribal rep Kyle White, and we're going to take a deep dive into indigenous adaptation work and proper ways to engage tribal communities. I'm also bringing back Jesse Keenan of Harvard University, and, we're, and we'll discuss his recent work on climate financing. And I'm also interviewing Marcy Rockman, former cultural resources adaptation coordinator with the National Park Service. There is some great stuff coming up. All right, last episode, I mentioned I was going to be lecturing in three university classes. I completed one of the classes, Kate Williams at the University of Waterloo. I talked about adaptation, the podcast, and also what it takes to start your own podcast. Thanks, guys. You had some great questions. This week, I'm lecturing for Lad Keese planning class at the University of Arizona, and I get to do that one in person. Thank you. And soon, I'll be doing a similar lecture at the University of New Brunswick. I love doing these lectures. A great chance to share stories from the podcast and share what's going on in the adaptation universe. Students are great. Please reach out if you are interested, either for your students or even for a professional training. Okay, just a reminder, America Adapts is a charitable organization that needs your support. Please consider giving a tax-deductible donation. You can find links to the We Did It Donate page in the show notes. Look down now. Also, if you are interested in partnering on a specific podcast, let me know. There are so many stories to tell on this emerging issue of adaptation. Let's see if we can collaborate on a future episode. Also, if you're interested in having me speak at a public or corporate event, please reach out. I've been doing some keynote presentations and they are so much fun. I share stories from the podcast and my own experiences in the adaptation world. I will talk about adaptation in ways that will motivate and inspire you. You can contact me via the website americadapts.org. Okay, adapters, let's see what the Big Apple is doing on climate adaptation. Hey, welcome back, Adapters. On today's episode, I am very excited to be hosting Signe Nielsen. Signe is based in New York and is a founding principal of Matthews Nielsen Landscape Architects and has been practicing as a landscape architect and urban designer in New York since 1978. Hi, Signe. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Doug. Good to talk to you. 
this has sort of been a long time in the making, but it's great to finally have you on. And I've really been enjoying doing the homework on you. You've been in the thick of a lot of New York things. And that bio I just did to introduce you is really just tiny. You've, you're award-winning um, landscape architect. And, and yeah, it was fascinating to see all the work that you're doing. And I'm going to just jump into this. We're here. This is a climate change podcast. You were at this event climate change in New York City, bridging science and practice. And I think this would be a good way to kind of start all these discussions I want to cover is you were quoted as coming up as part of some case study work that you did. You had three basic principles of designing for the future. And I'm going to read them real quick, but then we can jump into those. Deliver quality of life as a key performance outcome of a design. Social cohesion is a key increased resiliency and local responses generate generalized climate responses. And I'm assuming you remember that presentation. I do. Yes. Well, give me a little history. So that I mean, it seems like you put a lot of thought there. How did you come up with those three sort of principles? Well, if you think about, I guess that being in New York, we were engaged in a number of projects immediately after whatever you want to call it, Superstorm Sandy. And we saw firsthand the trauma that a number of communities had gone through. And in those early projects that we did, one on the Lower East Side, one in the Rockaways, and one in Lower Manhattan, you were dealing with a number of folks who were still, as I said, traumatized by the experience that they had whether it was lack of elevators or inability to get their medications or just a feeling of being lost and separated from their neighbors and no place to turn. So it it wasn't an anger necessarily. It was more just, I would say, a deep-seated fear of how their life would go on. So I think from that, I got those two principles of quality of life and and social cohesion. And the state of New York issued a, a very interesting RFP called New York Rising. And it was one of those projects that we did very early on after, after the storm. And there was very little money available from the state. It was more about bringing people together to talk about how they could adapt and be more resilient in the event of another disaster. And what we heard over and over again is that folks wanted a way to communicate, to know that there was a place to go, that they could find out what to do if they were somehow stranded. So to me, that is a quality of life when you think about sort of the future. So in regards to the the first two out of those three and my own brief exposure to landscape architecture is that those just seem like the kind of bread and butter approaches to landscape architecture, right? I mean, these are the things that you're doing when you're doing projects, but I guess this additional one is like climate change and you bring in threats of other things. But is that third one sort of the kind of unique thing in all this? Uh, I would say it is. I think that where landscape architects I think we're kind of deeply emotional. I don't want to speak for all landscape architects, but I certainly respond as one human being to another and trying to figure out how my skills and skills of of landscape architecture can be used to make people's lives better, frankly. And if it's through design, if it's through education, if it's through helping people understand what is the the basis of a problem. That is what I I want to try to do. And whether we do it graphically, whether we do it through inspiring designs, or whether we do it through kind of simple education. Again, I'm going to use another experience where we went out to the Rockaways very shortly after the storm. And community members were, were throwing numbers around about, oh, we need to, uh, a wall that's 13 feet high. We need to elevate the boardwalk to 14 feet. And what I began to realize is that nobody was really speaking the same datum point because part of the problem is that New York City for many, many years did not use the national benchmark for survey data. And instead, every borough had its own baseline number, which was completely stupid. And so each borough is actually somewhere between a foot and a half off from another borough. Now everybody understands what Elevation 16 means. But right after the storm, there was a lot of confusion. So what we tried to do is explain to people what exactly these elevations meant and when they remained vulnerable and when they could be considered 
you know, safe until 2050, 2080. And now we have data going out to 2100. Okay, I want to take a deeper dive in New York, and you've already kind of jumped in into Hurricane Sandy. But just, I guess, before we get into that, is when did you really start thinking about climate change? And you've been doing landscape architecture for since 1978. When did it really kind of come up into your work? I would say that we did a project in 2004 that lasted really until 2015. It began as a master plan of the South Bronx. And the first project that we built was in 2010. That was an outgrowth of that master plan. And during that experience, we decided to convert a contaminated bulkheaded shoreline into a tidal wetland and freshwater wetland. And it was at that time that I began to understand, first of all, the tidal variations in the river, the forces of surge, the amount of debris that any kind of storm surge brings with it, and the potential damage that that debris can do to a landscape. And I then began to think about what kinds of plant material would be able to withstand a flood condition should that occur. So I guess it was, I would say it was in the 2008 to 2010, somewhere about then. And it was, that was almost uh, synchronized with the first uh, New York City mayoral panel on climate change, uh, where we first began to see the statistics of the city. Okay, that's very interesting. And I think other landscape architects would probably learn from your experiences. But when you started hearing these things, how do you, as an experienced landscape architect, do you look at is there science? I mean, are there experts that you're reaching out to? I mean, you, it's such a new area. If you look at sea level rise and such, I mean, how do you literally sort of integrate it into the work that you're doing? And was there sort of like an aha moment, like, wait a sec, this is going to be a really serious problem for my field? To respond to your question about experts, yes, absolutely. We do use experts. And one of the the fields that is growing, it's quite inscrutable when you look at the statistics, but if you understand at the end of the day what is being produced, it's incredibly useful, and that is modeling of the water. So these models look at the way in which water can surge into an area or alternatively cause overtopping or where wave action can uh, result in what we now use as the freeboard additional elevation. And so this computer modeling, which is something that is completely beyond my personal capability, is something that we rely on uh, very heavily in our work. And that can, we did not have the advantage of that modeling when we did this project in the South Bronx, but our more recent projects are using um, this computer modeling. And I guess I'm just trying to get at some of those personal moments, even like in 2009 to 2010, is that you're starting to hear things like three feet, four feet, five feet of sea level rise. And those are now kind of considered conservative numbers. And just as a landscape architect, as you're visualizing, OK, New York was it makes your job that much harder. Did, <laughs> did it scare you or you just assume that all these experts were right? Well, before I opine on whether I think the experts are right or not. It did begin to occur to me very quickly, we, we are a city, and my work in particular over these number of years has been about bringing people back to the water. We are a city with 520-some miles of shoreline, and it is increasingly an asset for uh, residents and visitors to the city as we have moved manufacturing and warehousing elsewhere. And then I began to think about with these sea level rise projections that we were going to end up perhaps being a walled city, a city where we could no longer see the water, potentially not even see the sunset or the sunrise, depending on where you are in the height of those walls. And that is something that personally is probably the greatest concern to me. Now, to the second question about the statistics. The first mayoral panel had three levels of projection. It had slow 
medium and fast sea level rise based on uh, ice melt. And that, of course, is related to the global warming phenomenon. And that I really am not qualified to adjudicate on. I, I have to trust the expert. What it did make me realize is that, and as I have seen repeated issuance of both the New York City uh, Panel on Climate Change Statistics as well as the International Climate Change Statistics, makes me think that regardless of what actual number we are dealing with, we are dealing with a risk. And that that risk can be monumental uh, or just less than monumental. But any way you cut it, it is something we have to pay attention to with great seriousness. Well, it's nice you trust the experts. You're at this private firm, but you obviously are very involved with a lot of things going on in New York. And could you give a little bit of background on you are currently the president of the Public Design Commission? You know, what does that commission do and how is it sort of relevant to this conversation? The Public Design Commission is a very old body, started in 1898, and its ostensible or its, its mission is to review all projects on city-owned land, not state, not federal, just city-owned land. So the kinds of projects that we see are, you know, range from parkland to hospitals to EMS stations, police stations, libraries, uh, sometimes even housing uh, if it is built on city-owned land. And we are supposed to focus our uh, comments on the aesthetics. But as we delve deeper into the issues of climate change, one of the things that I have requested from all people who are submitting is that they identify the relationship of their site to uh, water and to give the, to look at their, their flood zone both now and for the useful life of the project so that we can have a conversation about the way in which the project is responding. Again, we have to stick to the aesthetics, but those aesthetics quickly get into issues of elevation change, access, handicap accessibility, relationship of that building to its neighbors. Those all become aesthetic considerations as much as they are adaptation strategies. Now, is it a, a city commission? Is it regulatory? Or, I mean, how does that work? We are regulatory. We are actually the last stop in the approval process. So every project on city-owned land has some city agency with whom it is coordinating, whether it is a development or, uh, arm of the city or the Department of Transportation, the Sewer and Water Department, the Parks Department, etc. And the, the, the project must go through approval of all of those city agencies before it gets to the Public Design Commission. So we are the, the last stop. We have regulatory, we don't, we cannot enforce what we say other than the fact that the project cannot move forward without our approval. But if the project is not built exactly the way we approved it, we cannot find the owner or in some way have teeth, if you will, behind our approval. Okay, maybe you can clarify this. And since you're involved with so many things there is that I hear things out of New York and it sounds almost there's there's so many overlapping things. You have these commissions. My understanding that the mayor of New York is actually quite strong compared to some mayors. You you have the city agencies and you have the federal government as part of New York. What's the I mean, is it an effective way to sort of deal with these climate change issues? Is the city really integrated well? I mean, it just seems like I, I hear about all these different initiatives going on and I'm like, I don't even know if they're related. Well, we are a huge city of, you know, eight million, nine million creeping up to people. And there's no question that to somebody not from New York City or Los Angeles, we are probably a daunting city in which to do work and navigating one's way through the jurisdictional process is no doubt 
challenging. I will say that I, I take somewhat for granted and, and probably use too many acronyms and such because this is just our bread and butter as at least 50% of the work that we do is for public agencies. So I personally don't have that much of a problem figuring out how to navigate it. But to your larger question as to whether the city is a coordinated front when it comes to having a strategy about how we're going to deal with climate change, I would say that there is a single body, and it is the Office of Recovery and Resilience, that is that has been given the authority to determine how the city moves forward. That being said, the building department is deeply involved with setting finished floor elevations. The Department of City Planning is deeply involved when they think about communities and how an entire community is going to respond to climate change, not just a one-off individual building. And the Department of Transportation is deeply involved because oftentimes their streets are low and become the channels through which water can flow in the case of a, a storm surge. So there are many, many agencies that are trying to grapple with the the impact of these various elevations that uh, we are discussing. And I've most recently been on a panel that I, it is a, a panel convened by the mayor, and it is specifically geared toward setting standards for climate change. What I appreciate about this current proposal is that it's looking at buildings by their relative criticality and their useful life. So, for example, when you're trying to decide whether you are going to design a facility to the year 2050, 2080, 2100, those are our typical benchmarks that we look at in time, one has to look at the useful life of the facility. What is its, is it being built as a 50-year facility or a 100-year facility, you know, such as a hospital? And what risks, therefore, will it be subject to? And how critical is that facility to the resilience and recovery of the city in the event of another disaster? So by combining those aspects of time and criticality, you're able then to establish a more nuanced approach to what uh, level adaptation a particular project should be aspiring to. And that is that is now really how I've begun to think about adaptation. That's very interesting. And has there ever been a situation where someone is the time frame of a project or a building might be 30, 50 years where some of the, I guess, the more extreme sea level rise scenarios don't play out? Do they use that as justification to sort of not try to meet some higher standard? Well, th these uh, particular uh, guidelines that I'm talking about have not actually been rolled out yet. Okay. Um, we're in the process of doing, shall we say, test fits, looking at five existing projects and five hypothetical projects to see whether the standards of elevation that we are setting are are too onerous. And what would and owner by onerous I mean onerous to the community in which they're located, onerous from a cost standpoint, and that is still in the process of being sorted out. But regardless of those specific projects, the idea of matching risk with time with criticality is is something that um, I think about. Now, there is a lot of argument, I will also say, about what is considered a critical facility. So while there's probably no debate as to whether a hospital is a critical facility, there is potentially a lot of debate as to whether a public open space is a critical facility. Because for many people, if that is their uh, you know, place of solace and their place where their children play and it's the only uh, open space in their community, is that a critical facility? So there's a lot of debate around the that term, critical. Well, it's good you're even having those debates. I want to drill down into a specific project that your firm's working on and maybe 
you, you can elaborate if this is a, a really good one to talk about, but the Peer 42 project, can you give a little bit of background on what that project's about? Sure. I think it's an excellent project to talk about. It is uh, located in the Lower East Side, uh, in the most densely populated area of all of New York City, which is kind of a staggering thing to to believe. It has the highest concentration of public housing. It has a, a rather low income base. It is extremely mixed from an ethnic point of view and a linguistic point of view. So when we started working on Pier 42, it was literally a month after Hurricane Sandy. And many of the residents that are within two or three blocks of the shoreline had their electrical and mechanical systems destroyed. And so they were part of that group of folks I was speaking about who had recently experienced trauma. And over the years that we worked with that community to develop the program and design for Pier 42, it was very interesting to me that obviously right out of the gate, they wanted the park, which is rather long, and uh, it's eight acres, but it's a rather skinny eight acres. They wanted us to provide some kind of a landform or, if you will, a barrier against storm surge. That, to me, was an appropriate response, not really from the standpoint of, of protection, because water could just go around either side of it, but from the standpoint of trying to block out the noise and the view of the highway. We did, have to, we did spend a lot of time explaining to folks that this distance that we might be providing an elevated landform, a berm, if you will, would only work if it was tied into on both sides so that that their entire neighborhood was protected. And they understood that. And they said, well, look, at least this is a start. And I agree completely. As we have uh, gone deeper into the design and as this project has actually been subsumed under the Eastside Coastal Resiliency Project, we have actually been able to tie Pier 42 into a larger mitigation uh, strategy for the entire east side. So that's been really a, a wonderful aspect of the project. But then further in talking with the community, what they wanted was park that was interactive with the water. So on the one hand, they, they wanted something that would provide some level of protection and on the other hand, they wanted to actually get closer to the water. So that duality is is poignant to me because it speaks to the fact that that residents of our city and I think many, many cities want that access, visual and physical, to water, whether it's rivers or, or the sea or an estuary like the East River. And uh, so, indeed, we have been, our our design calls for really the uh, removing sections of the bulkhead uh, in order to allow the tidal action to come in to the park. But if you look at this park projected out in time, and again, you can take whatever level of extreme you want in terms of sea level rise, this park will be more frequently inundated over the course of the next 30 to 50 years. And so we have spent a great deal of time trying to design something that has a level of adaptation built into it. So from the standpoint of the choice of plant material, hardscape materials, elevating mechanical equipment, using solar lighting, doing whatever we can so that storm surge will not put the park out of commission or destroy it. The thing that has me kind of really uh, in a state of consternation is at what point is a facility such as a park or a road going to be deemed unusable because of the frequency of flooding? You know, right now we maybe consider storms to occur every, whatever, 10 to 20 years. What happens when that is every month and the park is flooded once every 30 days? At that point, is the park unusable or will it have to be every week? 
These are questions that I don't really think we are all thinking about very clearly. But it is something to me that when I say, oh, okay, well, we've designed this park to be floodable. So what does that mean? Floodable, as I said, once once in a while, once every week. I don't know the answer to this. I think some of my listeners from Miami will kind of snicker because they're, um, as you probably are aware, they're dealing with that monthly flooding. And I'm not quite sure how the local government's really adjusting to that. I was just going to say I was just in Miami and I went to look at some of the projects that they're doing there where they are raising the roads. And it is something that the city of New York is considering. Uh, yes, Miami is is really trying to deal with this. Yeah, poor Miami. I have some questions about the community engagement. And I think I read somewhere that you had like 10 meetings for this Pier 42. I don't know if that sounds accurate. So the Superstorm Sandy came through, and that obviously just drove a lot of the conversation and changed the politics of New York. But when you had these community meetings, were people – coming to those meetings and talking about, I guess, sea level rise and climate change, or was it more just about this immediate concerns of storm surges and such, where there's these kind of two conversations that you can have about these threats? And how did the sort of person on the ground talk about that in these community meetings? You are correct. They spoke about it as, from a directly personal standpoint, they wanted to be protected against storm surge. As we all know, climate change has been a politicized term that I'm not sure that everyone in this country has their arms fully around. Even the American Society of Landscape Architects was loath to use the term climate change until fairly recently. But we did not go down that road, if you will. We talked about simply the fact that they were, that this park is at risk and is vulnerable, that we cannot tell you how soon this will be a problem, but that we have just recently experienced an example of that problem and we need to design for it. So to some extent, we skirted the issue because if we then started getting into ideas of mitigation and carbon reduction, that would have, I think, kind of sidetracked the focus of the conversation. But it is obviously deeply embedded within me but I understand that if we're looking at mitigation, we're looking at a, a much more, I don't even know the word for this, but a, a, a really a global approach. And what I can do in a single site is perhaps create a better carbon sink. And I can try to be responsible about my choice of materials and how a site is constructed to reduce a carbon footprint. But I, I can't solve the larger global carbon problem. And I certainly agree. And, and I wasn't sort of implying mitigation should be brought up. But I, I guess I look at those as two separate things is the immediate response to a storm event and storm surges versus this kind of steady threat of sea level rise over a certain time frame. And I guess having the local population recognize that this threat is baked in and not to sort of talk about in that larger climate change context. Are you really doing the proper planning or is it left up to sort of people like you that just, OK, we'll factor those things in. We don't expect the public to kind of really digest and give us the feedback on those issues. I would say where we look to the public to give us feedback is once we have laid out the, the levels of risk and we illustrate the physical manifestation of adaptation. In other words, by the height of an element, whether it's a berm or a wall or a levee or simply raising the entire elevation of a given locale, that is where people begin to recognize and become aware of what climate change is doing. So we have to translate these rather abstract elevations and issues into a physical demonstration of how a response can be configured. And then I think it begins to create a, an awareness that this is a growing, ongoing, even accelerating concern. Okay, I want to pivot a little bit here and 
And with all that free time you have, you're also an adjunct professor. Where, where do you do that at? At Pratt Institute in Brooklyn. I, I want to talk a, a bit about managed retreat. And y- you'd mentioned in our previous conversation that this is something that you're bringing up with your students. Yes. This year, I started a new course in the graduate architecture and urban design program called Adaptation and Mitigation. And as part of the the five R's of rebuild, resist, retain, restore, and retreat. And we talk about, therefore, retreat as as one of those five adaptive strategies. And I'm assuming it's probably the least attractive, especially when you, you think about New York City. And when you have these conversations with your students, are, are there already some case studies that you're looking at of managed retreat? It just seems like an incredibly difficult thing for a community to do, to find the resources to do. Is it something just realistic in the short term? There is one example that's been successful in New York City, and that is up in Staten Island. It's called Oakwood Beach. And the, that community, quite small community, had been impacted by multiple flooding events over the course of about 20 years. And Superstorm Sandy kind of put them over the edge. And when the state offered buyouts, as a community, they decided to accept the buyouts. We tried to make a similar suggestion to a couple of other communities that are equally vulnerable, both historically and moving into the future. And that community said essentially over our dead bodies, are you going to, are we even going to consider it? There's a place in New Jersey uh, that has accepted a buyout. There are several places in Australia where that has been successfully done. But essentially, just think about it from a humanistic standpoint. You're, a, a community has to decide to do this really as a collect. If people start to individually sell out within a fairly short period of time that community is going to begin to look like Detroit or parts of Baltimore where there's you know a few residents amidst a decaying environment and you know with that comes all kinds of social and economic disorder and so if it's not done as a group i find it very difficult to imagine how this can be done unless it is done in in effect as eminent domain, where the state comes in, says, you're all leaving, we're going to buy you out at market rate, and we are going to relocate you here. That's the only other way I can imagine this to be done. But it's, it is one of the most challenging topics. And for example, the Rockaways, which are a barrier island, uh, on the Atlantic Ocean in Queens, here in New York, uh, has an enormous population of people in public housing, and they were severely impacted by the hurricane. Where are we going to move 625,000 people out of public housing? Those people are not there by choice. They are there because it's all they can afford, and yet their buildings are extremely vulnerable. It's not just looking at single-family homes, as in the case of Breezy Point or, or Oakwood in Staten Island. It's a matter of what do we do with public housing. And, and for the most part, a lot of our public housing, I haven't actually done the percentages, but a lot of our public housing is in very vulnerable locations. And that is something that the city cannot do alone, uh, as that public housing, first of all, was built with federal money. When you think about a, a project a landscape architecture firm would do, have you heard of any, and I think I probably know the answer to this, where you look at things like oh, we're going to bring in you know, nature-based solutions here, but we're going to do some harding here, and, and you look at the entirety of the project. Have you heard of any projects out there that actually have factored in managed retreat as part of the the whole project? I have not. What I have observed is that there are that Australia and Japan are two of the countries that are probably doing this in the most intelligent way and where they have mandatory setbacks from, in the case of Japan, from tsunamis. And I guess in Australia also from tsunamis because it's on the West Coast that I'm speaking about. But I don't know an example in the United States 
There are several people out there researching this topic, and I am frequently being brought into the conversation. So I'm trying to keep my fingers on the pulse of research that's being done. I do know that the um, Lincoln Institute for Land Policy is probably the leading organization uh, studying this in the United States right now. Well, here's a little bit of <laughs> like a request for your class. I don't know how you what kind of coursework that you do, but just, you know, sometimes you have these seminars where students do these model case studies or model projects, and maybe someone's going to tackle managed retreat as part of the overall scope of the project. There would be a lot of interest in, in such a project if that were to, to be created by some students. So I, I agree. There's there's a, always next semester. OK, <laughs> great. All right. I've got a quote from you. You've, you've really got some great content on the Internet. And I'm and see if you remember this quote. And it's related to what we're talking about here with Pier 42 is a growing concern is that federally mandated hardening solutions can have negative impacts on communities and impart a false sense of security, potentially leading to complacency about climate change. Imagine living behind a wall, not seeing or smelling the river that you grew up with, but thinking that at least now you are safe from the threat of a storm destroying your home. And you've sort of talked about this hardening around the coastline. When I read that and I thought about New York City, and I'm not there, but you look at some of the sea level rise projections, the Pier 42 project, you're trying to kind of find that middle ground. But isn't that New York's future basically in the long term is this hardening and building these walls? I have no idea. Uh, I will say that for the Eastside Coastal Resiliency Project, there has been an about face in the strategy. Originally, the plan was to build a wall between the highway and the park and let the park be floodable. The thinking then was that this park would be lost in the future uh, and that it became, if you will, tantamount to the taking of parkland, which is something that we do not allow in the city of New York and requires the New York state to permit the taking of parkland. And there has to be some mitigation. The pivot then was to raise the parkland and thereby need only a very short wall uh, and the parkland would be elevated uh, probably to the, if you will, about the 2080 level and uh, the wall could potentially be increased to the 2100 level. But the, the idea is that we will raise the park as opposed to building a wall. Now that creates its own set of challenges. Um, it, it does mean that you will not see the river from inland. You will see the river from within the park. And access to the park will be challenging because right now the road is about six feet lower and, and all the roads and, and approaches to the park are roughly six feet lower than, than the park will be elevated to. So a solution to that is, of course, start to build bridges that take you up and over the highway and bring you in at that at that higher elevation. It, it's not the most graceful way to enter a park. It is not uh, necessarily an intuitive way to enter a park. And so if I think about, of, uh, I said a statistic at the beginning that 525 miles of New York City is coastline, but 125 miles of that is public parkland. And so that's what I'm really focused on is are we going to elevate all 125 miles of our shoreline uh, of parkland, or are we going to have some combination of uh, strategies? And are those strategies required to meet FEMA guidelines? You guys are going to have a challenge to maintain any ecological functions in on all that coastline. It is going to be a challenge for you guys. Without a doubt. And I think we're we're probably even needing to rethink what is a natural system and what is an, an ecologically performative solution to something that is inundated. And that gets right back to what I said earlier with regard to the frequency of that inundation, because it will completely alter your your plant palette, your materials palette and even the kinds of activities that one can envision occurring in that in that public space. 
Okay, so I want to wrap up our conversations talking about the field of landscape architecture and adaptation. And you, you'd mentioned that you'd listened to, I did a previous episode where I went to the ASLA conference in Los Angeles. And after I released that episode, I, I heard a ton of feedback. And what was really kind of encouraging is that a lot of people, especially young listeners, did not realize landscape architecture was a way that they could get into adaptation. They want to do climate change adaptation. And then that episode, they sort of like, wait a sec, these people are doing a lot of really cool things. And so I was very encouraged by that. And as you're discovering, it's keeping you busy. If you look back, you got a landscape architecture degree. And what coursework do you think a degree program today should be offering new students in regards to climate change? So, I mean, you've sort of learned as you've gone along, as you've been a professional, but what you go back to the university setting, what, what would you recommend? It's interesting that you ask, because when I uh, first introduced my my new course to the graduate architecture students, I said, how many of you have feel that you come equipped to handle the information that that we're going to talk about in this class and only one student raised his hand and he had a prior degree from New York University uh, in planning so I was quite discouraged that these students that are in their third semester uh, in a graduate architecture and urban design program were not being introduced to this uh, subject matter so that said, in a landscape architecture program, I think that the topics related to environmental performance are absolutely essential. Now, how do you teach serious environmental understanding without turning a landscape architecture program into a science program is, I think, the challenge. I look at landscape architects in a lot of ways as conductors of the orchestra. I don't want to say that we are masters of nothing, but we do need the input of a lot of technical and science experts. And what we need to learn is the ability to use the information and obtain information, ask the questions that wherein the experts can offer us the information we need to to create the music, if you will, at the end of the day. And so it's hard for me to figure out. We all took some flavor of environmental planning and soil science and, of course, plant identification, but we did not take botany. Uh, we did not take hydrology, et cetera, et cetera. And so how do, how do you balance this deep um, scientific knowledge that one really has to do, really has to have uh, with what we are as landscape architects, which are uh, kind of trying to put all the pieces together in a way that creates, on the one hand, beauty, and on the other hand, a performative and maybe even a healing uh, environment. And I, I think that's why I'm just a professor and not the director of a program. Good answer. And I've, I've had this recurring theme on the podcast. It, it, it's almost scandalous that universities, at least in the United States, the lack of programmatic work around adaptation. There are a ton of professors doing incredible climate change work, but is it actually reaching that programmatic and even graduate school level? And I have heard of only just one or two programs. Canada has actually been quite ambitious about offering, you know, full on degrees and adaptation. And this is stuff we should be have started 10 years ago. And yeah, we're, we've got a long way to go. I, I would agree with you 100%. As I said, it, it was just so incredibly shocking to me that that very intelligent students with backgrounds in design and uh, and other fields were not as aware or in any way aware enough about issues of climate change. And I've, I've, I'm, I want to learn more as to how I can be a more effective educator. And because of my longstanding tenure at Pratt, figure out a way to try to help modify that curriculum. That's encouraging. Okay, I just got a couple more questions for you, and I'll see how you want to answer this one. And I, I've been thinking a bit about landscape architects, and especially when I did that first episode. And, you know, a lot of landscape architects actually work in private firms. You are for profit businesses. I mean, there's certainly a lot in the public sector. So you need to get paid to do the work that you do. And I think of a scenario where 
maybe you're doing a coastal project and someone wants some work done and you are aware of, let's say, sea level rise projections or any sort of any other climate change projections. They don't care about that. They don't want to factor that in. And is it going to get to a, <laughs> let's see how you answer this. Is it going to get to a stage where there's sort of an ethics involved with being a landscape architect that you're like, no, I'm not going to work on this because you have not factored it all into some of the risks associated with it because you're not bound by law to do that. But I mean, do you have your own thoughts on that? I would say that our firm is very deeply based in ethics. And because myself and Kim Matthews, well, actually, I started my firm before Kim Matthews and I were partners. And at that time, I had made a decision that I would do no military bases. I would do nothing that encouraged our military industrial complex. I would not do prisons, etc. So I've always had a fairly strong ethical base in terms of projects that I won't even go near. Uh, last year, we were offered an opportunity to do a project in Miami, and we very quickly discovered that the building uh, in no way was being responsive to the climate change projections of, and even the climate reality of Miami today. And so we resigned from, or we declined uh, to participate in that project. I have no problem turning down work if I think that I'm going to be, or my staff, is going to be in a position where our ethics are compromised. Well, that's great. Very encouraging to hear it. And I bet that building had no trouble finding an additional firm that would take their money. And I, I'm assuming there's not some sort of universal code of ethics with landscape architects. It's just maybe just more of a basis that you might learn when you get a degree, but like accreditation or anything like that? Well, uh, as we are licensed professionals, we are obligated to uphold the state description of health, safety, and welfare. So to that extent, I would say it is ethically responsible and required of us to not put people in harm's way. So I would say from a health, safety and welfare standpoint, we should absolutely, as a as a group of professionals, not engage in any work that is not based on adaptation. That's too many negatives there. But I think you know what I mean. I think it was a great answer. One last sort of uh, landscape art question, then we're going to wrap this up, is that you've talked about some projects here, but can you just give one example of a model, and you can promote your own project, of a model adaptation project that I want to include in my show notes that's sort of saying if you, you're out there and they're like, this is really almost, you know, getting it quite well at, at this in this time frame, like at, at this stage. And is there one you would point people to? I'll use one. It, it comes with some baggage, I will say, and that is Pier 55. It has a lot of baggage because of the personalities involved in the project, and it has received a great deal of uh, press as a result of various lawsuits and what have you. But the project is now moving forward uh, unfettered, and it is the first pier that's, been, that's being built in the Hudson River that is adapted to climate change. All of the other piers and public access in Hudson River Park is based on the historic bulkhead elevation, which is quite low. Pier 55 recognized that this is a 50-year lifespan. We are obligated under our contract with the state to build for 50 years in the future. And so we elevated the entire pier. We separated it from land. There are these two gangways that that rise in elevation uh, out into the water, and the pier sits well above the water level. There are some interesting advantages. I mean, it's it, iconically, it's quite spectacular because of its elevation change. Psychologically, it's interesting because as you leave the bulkhead and you get out onto these kind of gang planks, you, you kind of leave the city behind you and, and you are going to what appears to be an island. And then thirdly, there's an interesting advantage of uh, the problems that we're always facing, which is shading of the aquatic life in the river. And by elevating the pier so high above the water, we're actually able to get the low angle of the sun, morning or evening, uh, to penetrate quite deep under the pier. So there's an interesting environmental benefit to doing that as well. So I would turn... Pier 55 as a 
it's now begun to have enough reality to it in terms of it's how much has been built that people can see this. Okay, excellent. And I guess if I had any criteria, if it was truly a model adaptation project, said, did it have a good communication strategy? Are you shying away from bringing up climate change? And this is adaptation because that to me is part of the models that it needs to be shared quite easily. So I don't know if that was part of the, the whole process. It was very, very much part of the process. Uh, it was something that we spoke about and we continue to speak about at, at any public interaction and also with the state and and federal agencies with whom we have had to obtain the approvals. Okay, two last questions. This next question, hopefully it'll be a fun question. You are in the thick of all this climate change work in New York City because you refused to learn how to type early in your career. <laughs> Is that accurate? To some extent, yes, I did refuse to learn how to type because I did not want to be a secretary, which was <laughs> where most women ended up in the 70s. I read that interview and I thought that was just a, an awesome line. Yeah, you know, that's, that you recognize the times, but yeah, that was what a great strategic decision. So, okay, my final question, and I ask this of all my guests, if you could recommend anyone to come on to this podcast, who would it be? It would be interesting to, picking up on your, your question regarding retreat, I think that is a question and a topic that demands further discussion. And not necessarily from the standpoint of a designer. So I would suggest, and I can do some research for you on whom at the Lincoln Land Institute might be an appropriate person to speak with. I, that would be one suggestion. Another suggestion might be somebody who works in biological habitat to have them talk about the how one can design for levels of inundation and frequency of inundation, which is the other thing that has me greatly confused. Okay. No, I agree. I've been asked about managed retreat and it'd be nice to dedicate a sort of whole episode to it. So thank you so much for coming on. This was very enlightening. It, you, you pulled back the curtain on New York City somewhat. You know, it's always been a mystery to me, even though I track it quite closely. But thanks for all that you do. And thanks for coming on the podcast. You're more than welcome. Thank you. How are you, Letty? You're looking good, Mike. We're in a real fix here. What do you think I should do? Lenny, officially, the church will not take any position on the religious implications of these uh, phenomena. Hmm. Personally, Lenny, I think it's a sign from God. But don't quote me on that. No, I think that's the smart move, Mike. Well, I'm not going to call a press conference and tell everyone to start praying. <clears throat> uh, I'm uh, Winston Zettimore, Yana. Look, I've only been with the company for a couple of weeks, but I got to tell you, these things are real. Since I joined these men, I have seen shit that'll turn you white. Well, you could believe, Mr. Pecker. My name is Peck. Or you could accept the fact that this city is headed for a disaster of biblical proportion. Well, what do you mean, biblical? What he means is Old Testament, Mr. Yes. Mayor. Real wrath of God type stuff. Exactly. Fire and brimstone coming down from the skies. Rivers and seas boiling. Forty years of darkness, earthquakes, volcanoes. The dead rising from the grave. Human sacrifice, dogs and cats living together. Mass hysteria. Enough, I get the point. But what if you're wrong? If I'm wrong, nothing happens. We go to jail peacefully, quietly. We'll enjoy it. But if I'm right, and we can stop this thing, Lenny, you will have saved the lives of millions of registered voters. I don't believe you're seriously considering listening to these men. Get him out of here. Bye. I'll fix you, Venkman. I'm going to fix you. I'm going to get you a nice fruit basket. I'm going to miss him. All right. We got work to do. Now, what do you need from me? Okay, adapters, that is a wrap. All right, in case you were wondering, that was a scene from Ghostbusters where they got the go-ahead from the mayor of New York to take back the city from the ghost invasion. I love this scene since it demonstrates the can-do attitude of New Yorkers. Okay, now work with me on this. 
But I think for some people, climate change is this out of this world topic that they can't quite get their heads around, but they are trying. I think sort of like what just happened in that scene. I've been to New York only twice, but I'm always dazzled by it. Truly one of the greatest cities in the world. And I think truly up for the challenge of climate change. And if there was ever a pep talk for adaptation, I think that scene was it. And well, quite frankly, I've been using that dog and cats line for decades. All right. Thanks to Signe Nielsen for coming on the episode. I'm amazed at the work already happening, and hopefully Signe's stories will demonstrate a lot of shovel-ready adaptation is already occurring in the city. New York is one of the most progressive cities when it comes to adaptation, but as you can see, they are still figuring things out. But credit to their political leadership for allowing the city the space to do these things. I'm sure we'll be coming back to New York City over and over again on this podcast. Some final housekeeping, don't forget to join the Facebook page and the Facebook community group. The group is private, but just search for America Dapps and ask to join, and I will approve you. The group keeps growing. We have some great conversations in there. On that note, I love hearing from you. I have those letters from adapters. Listen, if you don't want me to read it on, on the episode, that's fine. Just write me anyway, and I always get permission when I do that letters from adapters anyway. But if you have an idea for a guest, just want to let me know about episodes, reach out. Seriously, it's a highlight of my week hearing from you. I'm at americadapts at gmail.com. Send me an email. Check out the website, americadaps.org. All this information is in the show notes, especially that link to the donate page. Okay, adapters, keep up the great work. I'll see you next time.